Hebrews chapter 1. We um, will be reading today from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. And I am purposing to take us through chapter, or verse 5 down to verse 12. And I don't think that we're going to get all the way through this chapter, mainly because of what happens in verse 13, which I think I'm going to have to pick up next Lord's Day. Lord willing. So let's come here to God's Word, chapter 1 of Hebrews, beginning with verse 4 and read down to verse 14. Follow along as I read. The Word of the Lord says, Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirit and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same. And thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. If you don't have, and I didn't do it before the service because Nolan's not here today, hand out the sermon notes. If you don't have a copy of the sermon notes, they're on the coat rack back there on the shelf. Um, and you could slip up, Brother Giz, if you would like to take care of that, you can grab one and give one to Sister Heather because I'll be referencing the sermon notes as we go along. Um, I like to use sermon notes, beloved, uh, dealing with particular parts of the Bible, especially today that are dealing with a lot of Old Testament passages because we can start chugging through this and, you know what I'm saying? Yes, that's it. Um, and we can kind of get lost in, 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 you know, in the hayfields if you don't have something that I can reference and help you kind of track along as we're going through the citations of what the writer is attempting to do. Well, by way of introduction, we noticed the last time we were in the book of Hebrews that beginning with verse 4, there was a transition in this message by which the inspired writer began to exalt the eternal Son of God by comparing the Son of God to created angels. And the purpose of doing this was to demonstrate the Son's superiority to the angels. And while we were in verse number 4, we looked at 
just what the fact that was being asserted. We wanted to get a clear understanding of exactly what is the writer attempting to claim in verse number 4. And we see it there in our Bibles that it was very straightforward that the Son is much better than the angels. And that the Son had obtained a better name, an ex- a more excellent name, the text says, than the angels. And then in verse 4, we ask the question, we explored the question, why is the inspired writer even employing this device of comparison in the first place? Why is he comparing it, uh, the son to the angels? Well, we considered that he could have been doing that because of a very early Jewish sect known as the Essenes who had a very peculiar uh, eschatological understanding of the end of days with Michael the archangel and also there were two messiahs on earth and, and perhaps it could have been that these early Christians would have been influenced by them. And so the writer says, I have to deal with angels and the sun supremacy of the angels. But what we saw really that in the context of chapter 1 is most likely the case why he's even bringing angels into the mix is because by way of revelation in verses 1 through 3, he mentioned the prophets, how they were instruments or oracles of God here on earth during redemptive history to reveal truth. And angels also were used And so therefore, the writer, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants to make it very clear that as the angels were, yes, indeed used, as God used the prophets in a much more glorious way, they are still um, insufficient. Their revelation is incomplete compared to that of the Son. His revelation is final. It is certain. His testimony is sure. And it is sure because he was entrusted, we learned in verses 1 through 3, with this final revelation of God's plan that would take place in the consummation of the covenant that he made through eternity past to give to his people forgiveness of sin, even though they had rejected him throughout the years. We know that God accomplished this through Christ and that Christ was faithful in doing it because Revelations chapter 1 through 5, chapters 1 verse 5 tells us that Christ was faithful in doing this. On the, way, on the one hand, he was faithful in demonstrating this complete revelation during his earthly ministry and he continues to be faithful in that revelation that is superior than the angels today through his word, doesn't he? Through his word. The inscripturated words of the true and living Messiah are now at this point going to begin to be utilized by the writer of Hebrews to substantiate what he said in verse 4. That's what takes place in verses 5 through 13. He begins to use the Old Testament to prove, you could say, what he has claimed in verse number 4. And beloved, the use of of God's word this way. It ought not to go unnoticed by us. Because he purposes by doing this, drawing their attention to the inscripturated word of the Old Testament, to teach them, to disciple them, and by way of preservation of the scripture in in, in our context today, to disciple us in what is called the rule of faith. And so the Holy Spirit inspires the writer to make this claim, this assertion in verse number four that we dealt with. And now the Holy Spirit uses this writer to give them a lesson in the rule of faith. That is, as you see in your notes, simply meaning that apart from man's traditions 
and even other trusted resources, it is the inscripturated Word of God that they themselves are sufficient to teach us all that we need to know in matters of what we are to believe, that is our faith, and how we are to practice that faith, and how we're to live. It is the final authority for God's people. This is the rule of faith. And so think about that. That's what this writer is really giving them a lesson in. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just believe me because I'm a very whimsical and persuasive person. And you guys like my personality. No, in verses 5-13, through he says, I want to disciple you on the rule of faith that we go to Scripture to substantiate and to cling to all things we're supposed to believe and also how we are to apply it in our lives. Now, while there are indeed many useful and valid creeds and confessions in church history, which have preserved very vital important truths from the Word of God, they are never to be considered on equal ground, or they are never to be considered our ultimate rule of faith. No, the inscripturated Word of God is our rule of faith. We go to it and it alone to substantiate why we believe what it is we believe. So, knowing that is taking place here in verses 5-13, to how are we going to approach it? How are we going to unpack it? Well, I propose to you that we simply follow the outline that the author uses in how he's going to substantiate these claims from the Old Testament. He does so by quoting seven Old Testament passages. And he does it in pairs. You see in your notes there. The first pair comes in verse number 5, dealing with Psalms 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. And when he does that, what he's trying to do, as you see in your notes, is treat or emphasize the Son's uniqueness over the angels. That's why he's going to go to those two Old Testament passages. But then there's a second pair of Old Testament passages that he cites in verses 6 and 7 of our text today. And those are Deuteronomy 32.43 and Psalms 104.4 where he wants to emphasize the inferior position or station of the angels in contrast to the glory of the Son. And then, thirdly, he uses another pair of Old Testament passages in verses 8 and 12, and that is Psalms 45, 6-7, and Psalms 102, 25-27 that emphasizes the Son's supremacy. And after he does all of that, In verses 5 through 12, he comes to verse 13 to this wonderful climax, which I don't think we're really going to be able to do justice today. But you see, there's a natural outline to the text. We just simply need to follow that. But how glorious it is that after he makes this grand assertion in verse number 4, he says, now you who are very well acquainted with the Septuagint, this is just simply the Hebrew Old Testament that these Jews would have been familiar with and they would have been utilizing in their Roman Greco culture, translated into Greek. He said, you who are so familiar with that, sit down because now we're going to go explore how the Word of God was always pointed to this truth that I was telling you in verse number 4. Well, This is how we're going to start off. So let's begin here under our first heading, as you see in your notes in verse number 5, treating the Son's uniqueness by dealing with Psalms chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Look at verse number 5. 
For unto which of the angels said he at any time, and here is a verbatim, a verbatim quote from Psalms 2.7, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. While this psalm is written, many commentators believe, with a very specific historical reference to King David and the opposition that the Philistines were bringing against him, we know that it cannot historically and contextually be limited or confined to only referring to King David and the troubles that he was having with the Philistines. Yes, in a historical sense, it did in its most immediate sense, but it can't ultimately only be meaning that. And this is proven to us, beloved, by what follows in Psalms 2, verses 8 through 12, which speak of the Son... If those who, such as the Jews today, want to say it was referring to King David and or his descendant that would come after him, that would be a physical man who would be the Messiah. We know that it can't mean that simply by what follows in verses 8 through 12 in Psalms 2, which speaks of this son here in verse 7 of Psalm 2 as inheriting the ends of the earth, of him the son breaking the nations in pieces, and of the blessing which comes to those who would trust in Him. And therefore, as you have in your notes, we can rightfully interpret that this psalm, as yes, in a limited and a historical sense, refers to King David. However, in an ultimate and a fuller sense, as the inspired writer of Hebrews is doing today, sees that this psalm and this reference in the Word of God is utilizing David Um, as pointing toward the future son, the future greater son, the Messiah. David himself was never to be considered the object of man's hope under the wrath and the vengeful justice of God that's talked about in Psalms 2 verses 8 through 12. No, no, no. It was the promised Messiah. But rather, the earthly King David served as a type to the coming capital K King Messiah who would fulfill verses 8 through 12 in Psalms 2. And you know what? Beloved, this is what all of the ancient rabbis universally recognized about Psalms 2 verse 7. They saw that it spoke toward the coming promised Messiah and not physically to King David himself. Well, that out of the way, we come to just kind of consider then how is... The writer of Hebrews in his exercise of according to the rule of faith, according to using scripture to demonstrate the son's uniqueness, how is this going to help him accomplish that goal in the minds of this original audience? Well, the purpose of quoting this psalm we see is that none of the angels were ever referred to in this unique and this privileged way of being called the son. Rather, the designation of son, as we see in verse 5, quoting and drawing from Psalms 2, verse 7, alluding and pointing to the anointed Messiah that the Father would bring. This designation is exclusively preserved for a reference to the Messiah. Never once is there an angel called the son. So now we see how the writer then is using this to demonstrate, once again, the uniqueness of the son over the angels. Now I want you to notice something about verse number 5. Notice that the writer introduces this quotation of Psalm 2-7 in the form of a question. 
You see that in the text? Look at verse 5. He says, Of which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son? Now, in your notes, you see that that Greek phrase, at any time, it emphasizes the entire course of history. He answers the question, of which at any time did I ever call the angels a son or give them this privileged recognition by me as Jehovah, Elohim, God, as my son? No, no, no. That recognition is only given to one, and that is the Christ or the Messiah. But furthermore, notice that in this question, we see that it applies to even the most exalted of any of the angels. Which of the angels, of which of any of the angels, did I ever call son? This led one commentator, John Owen, to observe that, quote, this assertion respects not only the entire community of the angels, out of all of the angels that were created through the agent of the Son, that is, through Jesus, none of them, even the chiefest of them, even the most glorious of them, could ever have claim or entitlement to the designation of Son. And so we see then, don't we, how he's using Psalms 2 to exalt the uniqueness of the Son over the angels. Well, this unique relationship between Father God and the Eternal Son is demonstrated demonstrated through Psalms 2. It also comes to the surface in the second Old Testament passage that's used here in the text. Look again at our Bibles. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Quoting Psalms 2, verse 7. And again, now he's going to quote 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, as I've given you in your notes. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Exalting this privileged relationship between the father and the eternal son. But what can we glean from this portion and this citation of the Old Testament that can help us better appreciate the uniqueness of the son? Well, the importance of this particular text, church, is that in its redemptive historical context, as contained in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 11 all the way to 17, it records the covenant that God made with David and furthermore talks about how David's descendants will build for him a temple, will build for him a temple that will last forever into the kingdom of God. And so we need to appreciate then that in that context, there is in revelatory form or expression covenantal language that is being mentioned. That's the language. I will be unto him a father and he reciprocally will be unto me a son. This is comparable to all of the historical covenants that God made in redemptive history with his people. Think about it for a moment. God condescends down from heaven and he makes a covenant with Abraham doesn't he? He makes a covenant with David, as we're reading about here. He makes a covenant with Moses. And in this covenantal language, what emphasizes the uniqueness of the Son is God never once gave the privilege of entering into a covenant with any of the angels. Any of the angels. Look in your notes. For our purposes, this revealed covenant with David which we know from Psalm 2 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah and is significant 
Because, as I mentioned, God never makes a covenant with any of the angels. However, we do know that in passages such as Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and passages such as John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus, the Son, speaks as if he is participating in an eternal plan, in some sort of eternal covenant that the Father purposed for him to execute in time, space, and history. And so all of this covenantal language elevates for us by the writer in verse number 5, again, the grand uniqueness of the Son. This is ultimately, isn't it, what's really transpiring here and that the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp as we're gleaming, honestly, beloved, going back to these Old Testament passages, some of the most glorious, sublime truths about Christ and His divinity and His position in eternity. And we're getting but just a, a, a little bit of a glimpse of it. But that's who we're here to worship today is this Christ. Now prior to moving on to verses 6 and 7, the Spirit of God now wishes to impress upon our minds the uniqueness of Jesus over the angels because of His title as Son, looking at Psalms 2-7, and His eternal role in covenant with the Father God in redemption of man and all of creation, considering 2 Samuel verse 14. And we come now to verses 6 and 7 where the writer wants to utilize some Old Testament passages to demonstrate the inferior station of the angels uh, in contrast to that station of the Son at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Let's look at verse number 6. He says, And again, when He bringeth in the first begotten into the world, He saith, I let all of the angels of God worship Him. The usage of this phrase in verse number 6, beginning with verse number 6, and again, is properly translated in some of the modern translations as and when, or but when, or but again. And we understand that what the writer is doing here is he's saying, and again, let me add something more to what I just said in verse 5. He's going to further give more evidence, more support. And again, he says, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, Now let us consider this. I I really, particularly in my studies, appreciated the gem face that was held up and, 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 and revealed through an understanding of this. Because on the surface, it seems to be referring to the Son's incarnation into the created world as being a reason why all of the angels of God who lack such a privilege of coming into the world as a man would uh, uh, worship Him. On the surface, it seems like that. Read it, just verse 6, look at it again. And again, when He bringeth uh, in the first begotten into the world, He saith, let all the angels of God worship Him. It seems to suggest, at least it did to me, just as without looking at any uh, uh, other commentaries or exegeting, just reading it, it seems to me on the surface to, deject, to suggest that in some way that the Son's incarnation into creation further established the reason why the angels ought to worship Him. Would you agree? It kind of looks like that on the surface. However, there's several things that help us to see 
that what's on the surface here is not necessarily the case that's being taught. Now, due to our time constraints, in this message, I'm just going to give you one thing, but there's several things about this phrase that is teaching us it's not referring to his incarnation of why the angels should worship him. And if you would like to know some of those other ones, just get with me after church and I can share with you what I have in my notes. But what I feel is the most convincing of all from the word of God itself is what I provided to you in your notes. This Greek word that is translated here in our English world, it is used one other time by this writer in Hebrews 2.5. And there it's translated not simply world, but it is translated world to come. And so I'm looking here, and you'll probably just look on the other page of your Bible, and you see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the context of what's being talked about, where this Greek word, okoimene, okoimene is used in Hebrews chapter 2, 5. It says, For unto the angels hath he put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But in one, and a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or that the son of man that thou visitest him? Look at verse number 5 again in chapter 2. For unto the angels, he hath not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. He's referring to that heavenly world, that eschaton, that world to come, who right now, Christ sitting at the right hand of the majesty on the high, has subjection has subjection under his feet. Now it's the same Greek word that is also being utilized in verse number 6 that's translated world. So the question then is begged. Is the writer here in verse number 6 where we are at? Is he referencing this present world or is he referencing the age to come or the world to come? Look at verse 6 again, and let's just read it that way before we go any further. And again, remember, further substantiating the claims I made in verse 5. When He the Father bringeth in the first begotten into the world to come, He saith, let all the angels of God worship Him. Well, where are the angels right now? They're in the world to come. They're in that heavenly realm, aren't they? They are not here physically, these spiritual beings in this world. They reside at the throne of God, waiting for His command from Christ's crown uh, for His will to be done here on earth. And so, you see, we're we're, we're looking at this and we're already saying, okay, that, that that could work. When we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and we see how the same Greek word is translated world to come, it does seem to fit. Well, we remove all mystery. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, and I would encourage you to turn there, the writer again uses a different Greek word that's translated world. And in that instance, it really does mean the world created here in the present realm we live in. Hebrews 10.5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, the Greek word there is not okoimene that we're seeing in verse number 6. But rather the Greek word there is cosmos. And cosmos is referring to the present created world in which we exist. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body 
thou hast prepared me. Where did the incarnate, eternal Son of God come into time, space, and history? He, he came and he existed in what? The cosmos, the created world, right? He possessed this body that was prepared for him. And so with that evidence then, this inspired writer we can e- very easily see when he is referring to the world to come, the heavenly realm, he employs the Greek word okoimene, okoimene, which is here in verse number 6 and also in Hebrews 2.5. But when he's referring to the present created world, he uses the Greek word cosmos, right? Okay, well that was a fun lesson in Greek, right? How does all of that help us? Well, beloved, we see that in verse 6, the right interpretation, the right teaching, is that when God the Father brought or brings His exalted, resurrected Son, who Colossians 1.18 says is the firstborn from the dead, up from the grave, into the well to come, when the tomb is kicked wide open, and the conquering, suffering servant, fulfilling all of the eternal covenant obligations that we were just referencing, enters into the world to come, sets at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. The Father looks to all of the angels and He commands them, worship Him. Worship Him. So, when we come to verse number 6, and we see that the Father bringeth in. He, he, you, you get this picture of the first begotten eternal Son into the gates of heaven, if I may use that kind of corny language. But you get the picture here. It is at that great triumphant procession of Christ, the victorious Christ, where the Father commands all of the angels to worship Him. And beloved, guess what? When they on the edge of their seats saw Christ coming through into the gates of heaven, they bowed and they worshipped Him. This is who we're here to worship. Is this exalted Son who is given this honor, who is given this precious station by the Father because of his covenant fidelity and suffering upon the cross and the victory over the grave, over the angels. They are before his throne. They are at the feet of his throne. And he is, as the writer is seeking to use these Old Testament references and passages, they are to be understood at um, his feet willing to do his beck and call. Their station, their position is inferior to him as the victorious and honored son of the Father. Now, one more thing about this, and and this will be the last thing I say, um, because this is another evidence here about this phrase, when he bringeth in the first begotten in the world, that it's referring to the risen and the victorious Savior coming into the world to come not his incarnation. And it comes from the fact that many commentators believe that the song of Moses that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 all the way to 43, is what the inspired writer here is alluding to with this victorious work of the Son 
after accomplishing atonement for sin and being risen from the grave and exalted to the right hand of the Father, most all commentators believe that that's what he's drawing to the minds of this original audience here. In other words, when he mentions this, they would have thought, oh, the Song of Moses, which by the way, in ancient Jewish literature, and remember he's writing to Jews who had been converted to Christianity, in ancient Jewish literature, out of all of Moses' writings, the Song of Moses was the most popularly used. Uh, it was the most popularly memorized, you could say, if I could say it that way. And so when we look at the Song of Moses, we would see in chapter 32 that the Song of Moses, beginning with verse 1 all the way down to verse 43, gives a description of God's justice, God's righteousness. It gives a description and lament of how Israel had spurned God as their king. Uh, They had not lived up to the covenant obligations that they were supposed to live up to. That they had rebelled against Him. And how God was going to uh, send His call, you could say, His effectual call to other nations to provoke within them jealousy. And this, of course, happens spectacularly in the uh, inauguration of the new covenant. But all of that language ends with verse number 43 and chapter 32 of Deuteronomy with the promise of Jehovah making atonement for their sins. Making final and, you could say, uh, victorious atonement for all of the transgressions and all of the sins that Moses describes throughout Deuteronomy 32. And this is exactly all of the themes that the New Testament writers pick up. They pick up all of these themes, don't they? Throughout the epistles. They pick up for instance in Romans 3.25. How God it says sent forth his son to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Oh wait a minute. An original uh, Jewish Christian would have said. That's exactly what Moses would sing about. That's exactly what Moses prophesied about. How that we were so rebellious and how that we were so undeserving. Oh, but that Jehovah and his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, he would send from himself an atonement for our sins. And so the inspired apostle Paul, he picks up on these themes and he puts it all through his epistles. But if we need further evidence of the utilization of the song of Moses by the apostles, we see in Romans 10.19 where the Apostle Paul, he's seeking to build a case for um, how one is brought right with God, how the right understanding of salvation is to be understood. It's not because of descendancy. It's not because of lineage. It's by being born again, so forth and so on. Listen to what he says in chapter 10, verse 19. He said, but I say, did not all Israel know Did not all Israel know, question mark. First Moses saith, and he quotes Deuteronomy 32 verbatim. First Moses saith, basically he's saying Moses told the Israelites, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Thus Christians who would have read this message here in Hebrews verse number 6, they would have immediately understood that their covenant God who should arise and accomplish the victory mentioned in the song of Moses, verse number 43, come and have victory over sin, be victorious, 
bring and usher in the promises that he said, that they would have understood that this would have been God's own promised son that would have accomplished this. And the writer here in Hebrews verse number 6 expected his readers to understand that's why he used this phrase, he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. That it is a fulfillment of what the prophet Moses said. It is a fulfillment that Jehovah through his son has come and did something that no other angel could ever do and that is provide the atonement for us his people that he promised he would do. Now we move to verse number 7 where the, where the writer quotes verbatim Psalms 104.4 which in its context is describing of course how the Lord Creator has laid the foundation for the earth that it should not be removed and how that it maketh His angels or how that He makes His angels His ministers of and of the angels, he says, verse 7, who maketh His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. I think that the object and the intent of the Holy Spirit here is very clear, isn't it? The Spirit through the writer desires to show these early Christians the angels are employed simply in a ministerial capacity. While the Son is Creator and Lord over all, and this references, of course, what He's already established in verses 1-3. through That's why He brings them to that portion of the Old Testament in Psalms 104. Now, prior to continuing, we pause and we look back for just a moment. And we note that the Son in verse 5 is unique in His relationship to God the Father in a way that is superior to the angels. And that additionally in verses 6 and 7, by way of His exalted status as the triumphant, resurrected sacrifice, all of God's angels are inferior unto Him, which is reflected in their obedience to Christ and their worship of Christ. Again, this is the case that He's building from the Scriptures. And so with all of this observed, the inspired writer we see, he now emphasizes what is implied by these Old Testament passages that he has cited, and that is the Son has ultimate supremacy. Ultimate supremacy. And he does this further establishment of the Son's supremacy in verses 8 through 12 by drawing the original audience and our attention to Psalms 45, verses 6 and 7, and 102, verses 25 through 27. And so let us consider then now the Son's supremacy as demonstrated in Psalms 45, 6, and 7. Now notice in verse 8, number 8, it starts off with, But unto the Son He saith. But unto the Son He saith. What He's doing here is creating a very strong contrast between verse number 7 and verse number 8. Look at verse number 7, how He started off. And of the angels He saith, he maketh his angels spirits and ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You can already see, can't you, in verse number 8, the superiority or the supremacy of the Son, just by that little contrast of the introduction of the wording in verse number 8. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, verses 8 and 9 of our text today, or a direct quotation from Psalms 45, verses 6 and 7 from the Septuagint. And these, as we just read, I'm sorry, 
And just as we had to observe under our first heading about Psalms 2, verse 7, and the connection with King David, again, beloved, we come to another psalm that the Spirit would have us to know is ultimately referring to the Messiah, the Son. There are some interpreters who wish to rigidly confine this psalm to referencing some sort of a wedding of a king in David's line, such as the song of, I mean, such as King Solomon. There's some who rigidly want to confine Psalms 45, the chapter, of only properly being interpreted as referring to that. And so then therefore, just wanting to give people, you would say, the benefit of the doubt, we ought to ask the question, is there good evidence for such an interpretation or such limitation of this psalm? Well, the king we know from Psalm 45, if we were to study it out and read it, we would see that the king described there, he is very rich. He possesses ivory palaces. And the text in Psalms 45 says he possesses gold of offer, which Solomon, we know from historical evidence, he really did have those things in possession. There is even the mentioning in Psalms 45 of the daughter of Tyre given a gift Perhaps this is reflective of what we know to be true about the relationship between King Hiram of Tyre and Solomon. However, as you see in your notes, while there is good evidence for such an understanding of that psalm referring to King David, in its most immediate and historical sense, again, just like Psalms 2, church, it can't ultimately be referring to an earthly Davidic king. And very simply, we know that to be the case because of what is quoted here by our writer in verses 6 and 7. We know, of course, that it can't just very materialistically, confined, historically, mean some sort of king that is um, going to be getting married through the line of David. Thus, in verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 8, read it with me here. But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is referring not to a distant uh, future earthly king that's coming from the line of David, but it is referring to the Messiah, the son. And the reference of the king in Psalms 45 as God, as we see in our text today. Look at that. But unto the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That Old Testament word God, Elohim, led John Gill to observe on this passage that though this word Elohim is sometimes used of those who are not gods by nature, yet here in this context of Psalm 45, it is used absolutely with the attributes of eternity and most perfect righteousness being ascribed to the person in the text be in reference, the Son, and prove Him to be very true God of God. And this is the reason why His throne is everlasting, and this is why His scepter is called righteous, and why He should be worshipped, served, and obeyed by the angels. Well, of course we see that it cannot historically be limited to some man that's a descendant of David, No, this psalm is properly understood as the writer is using it here to be referring to the exalted son who has supremacy, who is God himself over all of creation.
with this in our view, this understanding that Psalms 45, verse 6, that is, is referencing the Son, the eternal Son, and that His throne is the very throne of God and will last forever and ever, and He holds the scepter of righteousness, thus demands, therefore, worship from all of creation, including the angels. We can better understand, can we not, verse number 9, which is a direct quotation of Psalm 45, verse 7, where he says, God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Above thy fellows. Well, of course he has. Of course he has. He has exalted him to his throne. And on his throne, he is ultimately supreme above all created beings. The Son is stationed in a position of authority and supremacy upon the throne. He is the ruler, and all the angels are but subjects and his servants. This citation of Psalm 45 by the inspired writer is a very wise use of Scripture to demonstrate that the Son, serving as the mediator of the new covenant, was not merely an angel, Like the heavenly ministers that ministered the old covenant, they would come and and they would at different times appear to Israel, the people of Israel, and they would make revelations of God's promises, um, ministering therefore the old covenant. Nor Nor was the son to be compared to even the archangel, but rather we see here by utilizing Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7 in our text today, verses 8 and 9, The writer is emphasizing the divine, pre-existent, eternal Son whose revelation supersedes all that which has been previously administered by inferior beings, even that of the glorious angels. The more you see the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 1 taking this painstaking task to, we admit it many times, appear to be over-redundant about this issue of Christ's superiority over the angels, it has to lead us to believe that there was in their midst, while we, this is a speculation, and I throw it out there as a speculation, but as I was studying this and going through this and what we've already labored through, verses 1 through 3, and then unpacking verse 4, and in just this tremendous effort by the rule of faith, to go back in the Old Testament and just make sure they don't have any misunderstandings about how the angels are inferior to the Son and that the Son's revelation is superior in every way and that they are to worship Him and not the angels. Beloved, I I believe that there must have been some tendencies of them in some sort of mysticism toward the uh, understanding of angels. And we know that that's not totally far-fetched because of the Essene community that was gathered in Qumran and throughout the rest of Judea. Well, having exalted the Son to equal status as God, Elohim in verse 8, our inspired writer now presses in on the same theme. He continues to press upon that theme of the divinity of the Son by quoting Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27 verbatimly. In our text today, verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 begins with, And, and thou, Lord, which follow, which is, which is what follow, meaning which what is following is going to be additional support. Uh, he argues verses 8 and 9 from Psalms 45, and he says, Oh, and thou, Lord, he says, 
Thou in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands. You see, he's given additional support as he draws their attentions to Psalm 102. John Owen rightly observes that there is no question but that these words here in verses 10 and 12, citing Psalms 102 verses 25 through 27, do completely and sufficiently prove the preeminence of Him whom they are spoken incomparably above all creatures whatsoever. The most relevant application goes back to when we dealt with verse number 4 is it is absolutely atrocious and sinful that we allow Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons to in any way, shape, or form think or believe that they are Christians. They dethrone everything that what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to establish here. We looked at how the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus really and truly is just but the angel Mark, uh, or Michael. We looked at how the Mormons foolishly believe and have concocted a theology that Jesus is just an equal with other eternal spiritual beings. Just more, uh, I forget the phrase that they use, but basically he has progressively arrived to a higher status than they? No, no, no. Absolutely an abomination and blasphemy. Once again, like many of the Old Testament passages, modern biblical critics dealing with Psalms 102 verses 25 through 27 and those who are fond of employing what is called the New Evangelical Hermeneutical Method, they quickly attempt to convince us that this psalm, yes, indeed, does reference Jehovah, but has no view of the Messiah, has no view of referencing or talking about the Son. And perhaps the writer of Hebrews, referencing Psalms 102 here, just misquoted. He didn't really mean to cite Psalms 102. Or, even worse, they say, he misunderstood the true meaning of the psalm. To this objection, I offer the following observation from one commentator, which I felt nailed it right on the head. He said, quote, It may then be laid down as a principle that the author of this epistle to the Hebrew Christians quotes this passage as referring to the Son. There's no ambiguity here, is there? He's using Psalms 102, the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit of Hebrews, to say it is referring to the Son, right? He says that the author of this epistle to the Hebrew Christians that quote this passage as referring to the Son and his honesty as a good man and his inspiration as an apostle secure us from the hazard of being misled by any of his mistakes. He could not have misapprehended the meaning and the reference of the 102nd Psalm. Even then, although we may, in our efforts to interpret it, we may find some difficulties in seeing distinctly that the words as they stand or as they're written, are referring to the eternal Son or Messiah. If we admit, as evangelicals, the divine authority of this epistle, that it wasn't a man, but it was that the Spirit of God told the man what to write. If we are true to that, we must attribute such difficulties, whatever we may have with the modern evangelical or hermeneutic, we must attribute any such difficulties sorry, to any cause other than the misapprehension or misinterpretation on the part of the inspired writer. Would you agree with that? I do. 
I do. If we come, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I'll be reading some of the old Puritans and they'll make a point about something and they'll cite a scripture. And I'll be like, oh, I've never heard of that scripture. And it's always this deep, hard, hidden gem back in the Old Testament, you know, and I find it. You know, beloved, it takes me a good 30 minutes to 45 minutes to contemplate and meditate. How in the world are they getting that out of that text? And then finally, I see. Oh, they didn't misunderstand it. They didn't misappropriate it. It's my uh, lack of growth, uh, you know what I mean? And my understanding, my spiritual immaturity that couldn't see the truth in it. And I think that that really is what's being drawn out by the quote that I just shared with you. As you see in your notes... We are to look at Psalms 102 as it's presented here and stand in that great tradition of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture that it is referring to the Son. And it is exalting Him as supreme over the angels. Now some of these terms, depending on one's church tradition, are unknown. I gave it to you in your notes. What do we mean by this? This verbal inspiration. Well, it means that every word of Scripture which this inspired writer today, you'll notice in my preaching, I very often, I'm I'm very careful to say the inspired writer. Because this isn't, some man didn't author this. Every word of Scripture is God-given. The idea is that every single word in our Bibles is there because God wants it to be there. He wants us to have His Word today. He has throughout all of church histories, been in His kind providence meticulously caring for, preserving, and keeping pure His Word. There is not one exception. Plenary means simply that all of the Bible is divinely authoritative, not just parts of it. This includes such things as the genealogies of the Old Testament. All parts of the Bible are of divine origin. Now, prior to moving on and concluding our time together, you may recall that in the opening part of this letter in verse number 2, that the inspired writer already has established that God made the ages through the agency of His Son, the Eternal Son, and that the Son's powerful Word is that which sustains and carries all things forward to their decreed end. And so we see here in verses 10 and 12 the Old Testament scriptural interpretation of that claim. Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundations of the, of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. This is exactly what he taught about the Son in verse number 2. Now the, the inspired writer of Hebrews is taking these truths from Psalms 102 and he is applying them to the Son which he's already established in verse 2. They shall perish all the works of creation, but thou remainest. And they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed, but thou art the same and thy years shall fail not. Beloved, There is not anything in creation that can hold the attribute of immutability, um, the changelessness that only the eternal God, divine God, possesses and holds. And so what the writer does here today 
is he takes all these Old Testament passages and he's exalting the Son as he is attributing them, amplifying his divinity. And ultimately, he's going to come to the climax of the station of where this exalted Son is at the right hand of God now, waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool. And so for our message today, I propose that we conclude with that thought and we pick up in verse 13 next week. And we just look at the present reign of Christ as being exalted above all of this creation, even the glorious spiritual angels, his station of where he's at now, and how he is reigning, and when and how all of his enemies will be made his footstool. And we'll briefly look at verse 14. Well, how can we just, before we walk away, try to apply this? Information. It's a lot of good, you know, technical studies in the Greek. It's a lot of good looking at the rule of faith, how we use the Old Testament to substantiate some of our beliefs and our practices. Well, beloved, first of all, I think that we have to be very careful, do we not, of allowing the eternal Son Christ to ever in any way be minimized in our thinking. He is glorious. He is high and lifted up. He has accomplished salvation and fulfilled every covenantal promise in Christ that God made to His people. There is not one I would challenge anyone to demonstrate to me that in Christ has not been fulfilled in God's covenant with His people. That is who we're here to worship. That's who we're here to worship. Secondly, I would say another aspect of application as we step away from uh, angelology the study and the admittance that there are angels and these spiritual beings and the recognition that there is even fallen angels known as demons. We recognize, do we not, that there's a great aid to us as the people of God in today's uh, message that while, yes, there are certain powers that are delegated to demons, while there are certain uh, abilities and forces that the spiritual realm of darkness does actually possess, they are all subject to the crown and the authority of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, aren't they? And so we don't have to get creeped out. We don't have to get uh, spooked, spooked out or, or scared about, you know, people such as next door to here who are blinded in those things of darkness with snakes wrapped around their hands. I shared with you, I was over talking with them, they were trying to scare me somehow, you know, would talk to me about seances they were doing in the graveyard. You know, that, that, that stuff doesn't scare us. We're not given a spirit of fear, beloved. Why? Because our risen, exalted King Jesus rules over all of the demons, over all of wicked men. Amen. And there is not one hair upon our heads that will be harmed. There is not one assault that will come upon us spiritually that He does not design in sin and allow to come forth. And it's for us then to set, to pray, patiently consider, contemplate, and meditate what, oh Christ, are you seeking to teach me in this affliction? I so love talking with the brother before church today as he's been studying 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 about endurance. And I was sharing with him how last week it seemed the Lord was pressing upon me from Psalms 119, how it is through affliction, no matter where it comes from, God uses that. His Son, Christ, uses that 
to make us more into the image of our suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by way of application, beloved, hold your head high, not in pride, lest thou shalt fall. Remember Hezekiah this morning? But hold your head high that you are a son, you are a daughter of light, and that Christ does in the spiritual realm and also in the physical watch over you. He cares for you and he is supreme over all other things. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our risen Savior, highly exalted, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. We come at the end of this message today, this lesson in the rule of faith, this examination of Your Word to further substantiate within our hearts and within our minds of Your supreme station over all of creations with particular emphasis of the angels. And we find great comfort, O Christ, that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know very well around this present evil age in which we live, around this world, that Your church is being persecuted You know that there is in this present evil age darkness growing, darkness seeking to threaten, to uh, scare, to intimidate your church. And we pray that as we walk away today that we would find great solace, great comfort in understanding and seeing that it is you who is watching over us. Give us courage, O Christ, in our feebleness. Give us strength in times of our weakness. And help us as we come through the remainder of our service, particularly in remembering your sacrifice upon the cross, your victorious resurrection from the grave, and your triumphant exaltation to the heavenly world to come. Oh, that it would give us hope. That it would give us, no matter who we are today here in this place, no matter where you find us in a particular trial, may it give us strength in the days ahead. We bless you and we thank you for allowing us to come together as your sons and as your daughters, as your people, to open but just a small portion together of an understanding of who you are in all of your glory. We thank you, Jesus. We bless you. And we worship you. And it is in thy exalted name of the eternal Son that we pray. Amen.